morning. The title uh, for this morning's reflection on Acts 9, uh, the first 19 verses, is missional grace. Again, we've been thinking about mission together as a church family and all the different dimensions of what it means to be people in mission with Jesus, with the Spirit. I want to give you sort of my big idea at the beginning, and then you'll be able maybe to see how we unpack that as we go. This is my big idea for this text, what I think we see in the movements of this passage. And that is that to participate, to be in the mission of God with him, is always an act of grace to us. We can't be in mission apart, apart from that grace. And the, the grace of Jesus to us through the Spirit is a grace that arrests us. It turns us back from our own way. It's a grace that initiates us toward what God loves in God's way in mission. And finally, it's a grace that reconciles us to be one family, one body, in and through Jesus. It's an arresting grace. It's an initiating grace. It's a reconciling grace. To be in mission with God, then, is to depend on grace. We are all probably weary of, of headlines we see in, in newspapers or magazines about Christian leaders collapsing, kind of under the weight of their own vulnerabilities. A couple weeks back in Christianity Today, I saw... Another one of these headlines about the founder of a Christian mission uh, that many of my close friends over the years have served with. They know this individual personally. But he was uh, asked to step down from his position of authority after multiple revelations came to light about his abuse of power. I won't go into the details here, but, but reading those things is, is troubling. It's disheartening. And it, it causes us to ask questions like, why do those who seek to do great things for God, seemingly, wind up harming the lives of people God loves in the process? We might wonder, well, how can those then on the forefront of mission end up living their lives in such a way that they actually undermine the true mission Jesus has for his people? Right? That, that pattern of, of leadership and mission is a troubling one. It's a human one. Henry Nouwen writes about the temptations that Christian leaders often face in attempting to lead in the name of Jesus, and that's the title of, of one of his books. He says, one of the great temptations in leadership and in mission is to try to lead ourselves rather than learning to be led. We want to lead ourselves rather than allowing God to lead us. And Nowen writes, quote, It seems to be easier to be God than to love God. It's easier to control people than to love people. It's easier to own life than to love life. And so then, as, as people who bear the name of Jesus... Right? Idolatry and control and possessiveness too often enter into it and, and corrupt our sense of mission, calling, and purpose. 
Today in the ninth chapter of Acts, we meet Saul of Tarsus. And Saul is among the most promising and zealous young leaders of his time. Squarely in the middle of the people of God in Israel. And he is certain that he could accomplish great things for God if he's given the chance. But Saul, we discover, is also unwittingly rushing headlong toward the destruction of the very thing God loves. And what saves Saul in this text is his encounter with a force greater than his zeal, greater than his leadership, greater than himself. In Acts 9, Saul is confronted with the grace of the living God in Jesus. And so as we steep in this idea of what it means to be people in mission, I don't want us to to lose sight of this reality, that to participate in the mission of God is always a matter, a means, an act of grace. Before we ever aspire to do something for God, or even with God, God desires to do greater things, gracious things within us as his people. You pray with me as we open up this passage of scripture today. Lord, we are thankful for the work of your spirit through your people in time and in history. We're thankful that that word is given to us in the scripture to form and shape us at this time and moment in history. Lord, I pray as your people that we might hear the arresting grace of your word today. That we might hear the initiating grace of your word today. And that it might, in fact, reconcile us to the power of your living grace as one people called to you, living in you. May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Jesus. Amen. So we are beginning in Acts 9, verse 1, if you want to turn there now. And it begins with the word meanwhile in the NIV, which is sort of a pointer back to chapter 8, where Philip has just taken the gospel out. The gospel of Jesus has left Jerusalem. It's gone beyond the boundaries of, of Jerusalem itself. But here it says, meanwhile, and we're going to learn about what Saul is doing, there's, there's a kind of counter mission underway as well, a force to constrain what Philip has been doing in chapter 8. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, 
Lord, Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Chapter 9 begins with a picture of Saul as a a kind of dynamo, a self-starter in mission. If anything, Saul is a person of initiative. Saul, we're told, goes to, he seeks out the high priest. He asks for letters that would give him the authority to arrest anyone walking in the way of Jesus. Saul takes the initiative to to make the long journey, probably a week on, on horseback, to Damascus. There is an urgency about Saul to carry out his mission. Many of us might find ourselves living with similar senses of urgency, right? To carry out our work, to get, to get it finished. Maybe we have an urgency to kind of stay up with the pace of activities and demands in our lives, We seek at the end of the day or the week or the month or the year to have a a list of accomplishments that we could point to or rest in to sort of ground our sense of self-worth. But for all of Saul's initiative, in verses 3 and 4, we discover that Saul's mission is blockaded, right? It's, It's halted by a blinding light, it says, from heaven which is followed by a question for Saul. Saul, why do you persecute me? And for maybe one of the first times in this young leader's life, Saul is forced to confess his ignorance. Perhaps Saul is thinking to himself in this moment, I can't ever remember persecuting someone who who looked like this, sounded like this. I have only been zealous to persecute men and women who call themselves disciples of Jesus. So Saul replies to this question in verse 5 by asking, Who are you, Lord? To which the voice from heaven says, I am the Lord Jesus, who you are persecuting. Saul has been seeking to do great things for God in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But in fact, Jesus says, he has been wounding the very God, persecuting the very God he intends to serve. Saul has come right to Damascus in order to arrest anyone following Jesus. But Jesus comes to Saul in order to arrest 
his mission. Right? To arrest the mission of Saul and turn loose the mission the Spirit of God has for him. I don't want to move too quickly over, over the image we have here. The image of God's gracious arrest of Saul. For all of, of the power and, and pride of Saul, who, who would assume that his personal will, his personal agenda, his personal prejudice is, is somehow congruent to the will of God. God chooses to blind Saul in that moment. He chooses to halt all of those instincts. And we see as this passage continues that that Saul has to be led away from that moment of confrontation by the hand. He, He walks those last steps into Damascus. And he waits there, we're told, with hunger and with thirst for a fresh revelation of who God is. As as various commentators note of this passage, instead of taking prisoners, Saul, in a way, becomes a divine prisoner here. Saul is captured by the pursuing grace of God toward him. Saul has been seeking to destroy the name of Jesus, but instead, Jesus proves stronger in his desire to save and to rescue Saul. So for anyone then to be in the mission of God is to to need, is to depend upon the arresting grace of Jesus. Right? For Jesus to track us down in our ambitions. For Jesus to welcome, uh, for us to welcome Jesus to confront our blindness and prejudice. To be part of the mission of God is to be ensnared in the things that God loves. Is it possible that we need God to arrest us in some way today? What if God's grace to us today is the word stop and cease and instead be captured by the love he possesses for us as people. The grace of Jesus is one that can arrest us and must arrest us at times, but it's also a grace that continues to initiate and to lead us in a new direction. I want you to look at verses 10 through 16. It says, In Damascus there was also a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. 
And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We see in in the middle part then of this section, there's a kind of double vision taking place. At the same time, Jesus is appearing to Saul on the road outside Damascus. Jesus is also appearing in a vision to Ananias. And there's a sense that these two visions are, are sort of united. They're working together to bring these two men into contact, into relationship with each other. But in some ways, the, the response, the initial response of Ananias and Saul are, are in contrast with one another. First of all, notice in verse 10 that the familiarity that Ananias already has with Jesus when he appears to him. Right? When he sees Jesus in this vision, Ananias doesn't say, who are you, Lord, as Saul did. Instead, he says, yes, Lord. Right? There is a familiarity, there is an acquaintance, there is a history between Ananias and Jesus in mission and in partnership. Second, though, Jesus has no need to slow down or to arrest Ananias then with his grace, at least not in this moment. Instead, Jesus' word to Ananias is, is quite the opposite. Jesus says, go, Ananias. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. But but to that command, we now see Ananias responds with reluctance to be part of God's mission. Verses 13 and 14. For, For a follower of Jesus in Damascus, Saul is persona non grata. We know from from verse 1 in chapter 9 that Saul has likely made direct threats on Ananias' own family or friends in that city. So Ananias desires to know Jesus, but Ananias has no desire to know or enter into relationship with Saul. He wants to keep that out of the mission of God. Something that that greatly troubles me about the the way discourse is happening in our world today is how eager we are to label the opposition, the enemy, the one who is different from whatever we feel or think or believe. We're, We're eager to write off as offensive or insensitive anyone that would 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 cause that kind of dissonance and we'll write them out of our lives, we write them out of our news feeds on Facebook, we we write them out of friendships and relationships and social circles. But what would have happened here if Ananias stuck with that approach? What if Ananias sought to, to cancel his mission to Saul here? He would have, in fact, been in canceling God's entire mission and redemption of the Gentile people. He would have, in many ways, been 
responding effectively in in the same way as the Sanhedrin did and Saul did back in chapter 7 when they drove out Stephen's voice, eliminated their enemy, silenced their opposition. In this case, however, the grace of Jesus to Ananias will not take no for an answer. Jesus challenges Ananias to initiate his grace towards Saul. Because Jesus' love for his enemies is so great, Jesus makes plans for his enemies. Jesus calls his enemies chosen instruments who will display the work of his grace to the nations. We see that in in Ephesians 2 in a powerful way. When when Saul, who becomes Paul, writes of this, that that in his life forever he will be on display as as one who is raised up and, and sustained by the grace of God. Evidence of God's incredible mercy. So in verse 15, he again commands Ananias. He says, go, be an initiator of my grace toward your persecutor, toward your enemy. Maybe the word of God's grace to us or to you this morning is not stop, but instead go, initiate, walk toward, get close to one that you would would otherwise withdraw from. And seek to see what the grace of God is doing with them and together in that relationship. As Ananias obeys Jesus' command, what follows in verses 17 through 19 is absolutely incredible. Verse 17 says, so then Ananias went to the house of Judas and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. The third thing I want us to see in this passage is the grace of Jesus in mission to reconcile, to bring lives, disparate lives, together for his purpose and through his love. It's incredible to think about what happens from the beginning to the end of this passage. Saul, who was intent on arresting and imprisoning and breathing murderous threats out to these disciples, now spends time around the table with them. grace of Jesus is a reconciling grace. This past week, I spoke with a friend of mine who is a pastor in another city, and he described uh, recently attending an anti-racist gathering organized in that city by, by several large churches. 
And he said, at, at that gathering, there were numerous voices gathered there. And some of those voices he, he readily could find common ground with, and others were, were voicing views that, that were a good distance from his own, and things he felt comfortable with. But he said he, he made the choice to be there because he said there was little chance for him to participate, to enter into actual reconciliation unless he took that difficult step forward, that initiating step forward into a real relationship. Here in verse 17, we're told that Ananias goes to the house he has seen in the vision. But it is the house of, of a previously known and hostile enemy of the faith. But Ananias chooses not just to go to the house, not just to knock on the door and deliver a message. We're told that Ananias enters the house. He walks across the room. And before any words are even exchanged, Ananias places his hands upon Saul. How uncomfortable is that? Right? That, that level of proximity and intimacy with one that you have, have greatly desired not even to, to come into contact with. It says he lays his hands upon Saul, a man imprisoned in hatred and spiritual blindness, and he says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, the one who appeared and arrested you on the road outside the city, he has sent me to you so that you might see again. And the grace then of Jesus moves to reconcile and to bring these two men into the same space to share in, in the same God, the same spirit. It says immediately in verse 18, the scales, the cataracts on Paul's or Saul's eyes fall. Whatever arrested his sight falls away, and, and then we're told that Saul now rises to his feet to be baptized. And he returns to a household where other brothers and sisters, other disciples in Damascus are living. And they share fellowship. They share meals with one another. And Saul is strengthened and begins to learn what it means to be part of this new family. Family in which the living grace of Jesus is alive. I want to finish this morning by just reading a few verses from Ephesians 2. Again, this is a letter of Paul same Saul described here. And I wonder if, if in the back of his mind as he writes to the church in Ephesus, if these early experiences are not at least something he's drawing from. He's writing to the, to the Jew and to the Gentile that are divided against one another. And he says, but in Jesus, you have now been united, verse 13. Once you were far away from God, now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of 
hostility separating us. May we be people who invite and allow the grace of Jesus to arrest us from our own mission. May we allow the grace of Jesus to us to initiate us and lead us into his mission. And may we be a people who are reconciled and made one in that new body and mission together. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are powerless. We are visionless to enact your mission on our own. Despite our best intentions, Lord, there is too much in us that is broken, fallen, and prejudiced, and proud, and that needs the correction of your spirit. It depends upon the work of your grace initiating toward us. Lord, make our hearts soft. Turn us away from the path of destruction and into the living way of Jesus, the crucified but risen Son of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.